0: Well, good morning. going to uh, pick up on Matthew 19 now, but we're going to start with a prayer. And uh, because we're going to be talking about divorce uh, and uh, acceptive clause and all this kind of thing, I'd like to really especially pray for wisdom and for strength. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you seeking your Son and seeking his teaching and his truth and seeking your strength, to be honest enough, to accept what he says, and to walk in his ways, knowing that you wish us only good, our eternal good, in our latter end, and that your commands are not grievous, and that you will not give us a situation that is too much for us, but you will, with the temptation, also make a way of escape. Help us, Heavenly Father, then, in intellectual honesty, with spiritual strength and courage, to go through what the Lord is saying here and to perceive the beauty of his ways and your ways. And we pray for the strength to walk, even as he would have us walk, and as he walked. For his sake. Amen. Well, as I said, we're going to be looking here at uh, Matthew 19, and of course it has this section in it about divorce, and uh, this so-called acceptive clause, and all this kind of thing. And uh, I almost wanted to skip this whole uh, section, because... I don't want to be in a position of having taught you something which might be wrong. I might take a too liberal view that sort of says, yeah, you know, then why about it? Hang, you just, just don't worry about it. Or I might take a too strict view and say, look here, this is not possible. Divorce, etc., is not allowed. And if you've remarried, well, you know, basically you're not going to be in the kingdom, etc." And then I might be binding on you uh, a load too heavy to be borne. So... Humanly speaking, the best thing is for me not to even venture an opinion. But then people are left swimming, not really knowing what's going on here, picking up all kinds of ideas that this is possible or that isn't possible, uh, etc. And so, as always, I'm not here, especially in this context, to, to teach you in the sense of telling you this is how you must live your life, this is the ultimate truth from my lips. I'm here to discuss with you, really just to discuss with you, what we have here in the text. And I am going to be uh, coming out with a view that could be seen as good news for the the divorced and remarried. And I would just like to mention uh, before we start that I am not divorced and remarried, and neither is my wife divorced uh, and remarried. Uh, Neither were my parents, neither were her parents. I have no siblings uh, who are divorced and remarried, neither does my wife. Uh, so, you know, that this is not in any sense any exercise in kind of self-justification. I'm coming at this text as honestly and straight as I can, which I know is how you also would like to come to it. Now, what I think is crucial in understanding Matthew 19 is to understand its context. Because there's a whole block of teaching, starting at the beginning of Matthew 18 that runs through, I suggest, to the beginning of chapter 20. And although it was given at different times, it's presented here by Matthew as one block. And it is set in what is called a chiasmus. That is, there's about uh, four themes. Uh, Let's call them A, B, C, and D. And then there's a central point, and then each of those four themes repeats in slightly different ways. We could call it A1, B1, C1, D1 uh connecting with the initial A B C D. Now that was the way that they presented literature in those days. In our days we would uh do it in terms of subheadings and a little text box that says important point note this etc. They didn't have that kind of apparatus and so they used this kind of thing, like chiasmus, uh, in order to, to present material. So we need a recap the teaching in Matthew 18, which we looked at the last uh, couple of presentations. There the Lord is teaching something pretty shocking about unconditional forgiveness. If your brother sins against you, he says, uh, you should forgive him 70 times 7. Peter says 7 times, Jesus says no, 70 times 7. That is unlimited. And of course, uh, in Luke it says that uh, if that happens per day, you should still forgive. So... Clearly the repentance is not sincere, but the Lord is saying, forgive anyway. And yet he also says in that chapter, if your brother sins against you, take your buddy with you and go and sort it out with him. And if that doesn't work, take two or three others. If that doesn't work, uh, turn it to the ecclesia. And I suggested last week that the ecclesia is, uh, I think, a reference to synagogue discipline because there was no ecclesia in the sense that we know uh, the church uh, of today. So the Lord is not contradicting himself. He's saying, look, in the case of personal sin, you can you can take it up with your brother and uh, get someone else to come around and sort it out with him and then drag him through the synagogue discipline system and kick him out. But there is a higher way that I urge upon you. And he concludes Matthew 18 with a parable of the two debtors. And he asks us to identify with the guy who has the colossal debt who can in no way repay it, and he just must treat any other sin against him, any debt that anybody owes him, as absolutely nothing, compared to the debt that he perceives, and I think that is the point, that he perceives that he owes to his Lord. So, that was the, uh, the, the context, and Matthew 19 is full of allusions back to that, so, the Pharisees come unto him and say, verse 3 of 19, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? You must understand that the Greek word translated put away, and this is say, the same in the Hebrew, is uh, really the same as to forgive. It means to, to let loose, to, to let go, to let depart. And so, there's a play on this. They're saying, look here, you've been teaching about forgiveness for Anything, and you, you are talking about unconditional forgiveness, but look, surely there are some cases where you can't do that. And of course, that is actually, I think, our feeling as we, as we hear the Lord's words in Matthew 18 about 70 times 7 per day forgiveness, to say, yeah, 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 but Jesus, wait a minute, but what if? But, but what in this case, or what in that case? And they think they've got Jesus on this point because they say, Is it lawful, that is, is according to the law, to put away, same word and idea as forgive, for every cause? And they thought, now we've got you here, because uh, the law does say, Moses does say, that you can divorce uh, for adultery. And... It's been said that, and this is the standard line of interpretation, that are oh, they trying to draw Jesus into an argument uh, between Shammai and Hillel uh, about uh, divorce? That so these were the two uh, schools of thought in those days. Hillel was teaching that a man could divorce for any reason. Shammai was teaching that divorce was only allowable for adultery. Uh, and the Lord is not getting drawn into it. This is typical of how he responds to uh, questions like this. He never engages on that same level. He always takes it on to a higher level and turns a question another side around. And this is what he's doing here. Those who read Matthew 19 are saying, ah, yeah, well, they gave Jesus a question, and he said, um, oh, my opinion, uh, yeah, there's an acceptive clause. Divorce is possible for adultery. Now, I think you're missing the point, because in that case, Jesus would be taken the side of, uh, of Shammai against Hillel. And he wasn't doing that. This is, If that's how we're going to read it, this would be absolutely out of step with his whole attitude to these kind of questions. He never engages on the same level. He always takes it to a higher level. And that is what I think he, he's doing here. He says to them, have you never read, verse 4, and of course he's talking then to these uh, legalists, these lawyers who could read, when he talks to the masses, he says, you have heard that it was said, and of course, just pause there and take a lesson, have you never read, well of course they had read, and of course he goes on to quote from the most basic uh, early chapters of Genesis, of course they had read, but you can read and not really read, and this is the whole challenge to us in our Bible reading. And he makes the point, and this is clearer in Mark's record, that, well, Moses allowed you to divorce your, send away, as it means, to send away your wives for the hardness of your heart. But from the beginning, this was not the intention. And uh, they say, verse 7, well, why did Moses command to give a writing of divorcement and to send her away? Well, they were missing the point. A concession is not a command, but they had such a legalistic head to them that the fact that Lord Jesus talked about, uh, sorry, the fact that Moses talked about uh, divorce for adultery, they said, ah, that's a command. If she divorces, off she goes. Sorry, if she commits adultery, off she goes. And yet the Lord is, I think, making the point to them that, look, a concession is not a command. You're so legalistic that because Moses said this, you're jumping on that and saying, therefore, that's a command. Therefore, I must, I have no option but to send away my wife if she commits adultery. Now, this, of course, is, as I say, directly in the context of Matthew 18, uh, unconditional forgiveness. And Yeah, they're raising, I suppose, the hardest question in terms of personal offense, if my brother or sister sins against me, that is, if your partner commits adultery. What, you going to forgive her that, seven, seventy times 7 per day? And the Lord is saying, I think, yes. Now, he quotes them, of course, the ideal from Genesis, and he says that it's God's intention that a man should leave His parents and cleave to his wife, and they two will become one. Uh, They are joined together. They are no longer two, but they are joined together. Verse 6, and let not man put that asunder. I think this is a reference, not particularly to the sexual act, not particularly to the process of the actual wedding, uh, but a process of a bonding together, of joining the two together, that goes on throughout life. And God is in that. That's what he's saying. And if you work against that by sending away the party that commits adultery, you're really working against God's intention because God has promised this special power from him to join two people together. You ask anyone like myself who's been in a good marriage for many years, is that true? And yes it is. There is this other hand this psychological hand working in your relationship that binds the two of you together. And if you row with each other or if you chase each other out or chuck someone out or whatever because they committed adultery or whatever, you are working against that essential intention of God, that effort of God to bind you two together. Now, from the beginning it was not so, verse 8, he says. Now, this phrase it was not so, it is not so, is actually the phrase that has been used in chapter 18, uh, or it's translated a little bit differently, about how it is not so. It is not so that it is the will of the Father that the little one should perish. And throughout chapter 18, he's developed the point that if you don't forgive, if you don't have the little one into your circle, then you will actually make the little one stumble. And if you make the little one stumble, you won't be in the kingdom. So therefore, he says, it's better to cut off out of your life whatever it is that might cause another to offend. Whatever is stopping you from forgiving another and accepting another, you better condemn it and cut it off and recognize that it's worthy of condemnation as it were, and throw it into into hellfire, And so... The language of cutting off body parts, ripping out your eye, etc., is in the context in chapter 18 of do anything, no matter how painful it is, so that you don't cause a little one to stumble. And his whole point in chapter 18 is if you reject someone, if you do not accept the little child, and this is why the, the motif of the little child wanting to come amongst them, and it's repeated in chapter 19 as well, and the children come to him. Uh, he's saying that if you will not accept someone, if you will not forgive them, then they probably won't get into the kingdom. Your unforgiveness, your lack of acceptance will of course them to stumble. And he's saying the same, I suggest, uh, about the specific case of if somebody has a partner, in the context of if the example is a man and his wife, uh, if the wife commits adultery, you must forgive her or else otherwise you're going to make her stumble. Now, he says in verse 9, and this is the difficult bit, uh, I say unto you, Moses said, Moses gave you a concession, but I say unto you. Now, if you just take it as it's written in Matthew 19, but I say to you that if you put away your wife except for fornication and marry another, you're committing adultery. Well, yeah, that's pretty well what Moses said. So, in what is the radical newness of the Lord's teaching here? And I suggest that you've got to put Mark's record together here, where in Mark 10, in the parallel record, he appears to say that there should be no divorce uh, at all, and there's no acceptive clause there. So I think what he's saying is that Yeah, Moses says whoever should put away his wife except for fornication. He's clarifying that, yeah, look, Moses obviously is not saying you can divorce for literally any reason. Uh, But I'm saying, if you put Mark 10 together, that no, don't send her away. Don't divorce her. Don't send her away. Because uh, you will commit uh, adultery if you do that, and you will cause her to commit adultery. Now, the idea of divorce here, the, the word literally means to send away. And I would like to emphasize that. Because I think that what he has in view here is a woman who has committed adultery, but hasn't left her husband. She is still with her husband. Otherwise, the language of sending away would be irrelevant. It's not as if she... Uh, cleared off and lived with another guy, and there she is living with this other bloke, uh, what should I do in that case? No. The the case in view, right in line with Matthew 18, and you can look in my notes, heister.org, look at books, and you, you'll see my detailed notes on this chapter. You'll see what I mean about this chiasmus, this con- connection, purposeful connection, between Matthew 18 and 19. Uh, what the Lord is saying is, is that if someone has uh, committed a a personal offence against you, and in this context, in chapter 19, he talks specifically about your wife committing adultery, then he's saying, don't send her away. But the adultery in view would appear to have been, uh, let's say, a temporary slip, because she is back living with you, because otherwise you couldn't send her away. So I think that that is what is in view here. It, there's something specific in view and it is back in chapter 18 if my brother sins against me what should I do and his answer has been 70 times 7 uh, forgiveness and I think that is why he uses in verse 9 when he says except for uh, fornication he uses this word porneia which is not, not the usual word for adultery He's saying if there is any kind of sexual failure, any kind of moral uh, failure in the the area, let's say, of porn, of pornea, it could be today looking at pornography, uh, it could be any kind of slip in that area, he's saying forgive it unconditionally, don't send her away. And then when he says, and I'll read how it is in most English translations, whoever whoso, verse 9, marries her, who has been sent away, commits adultery. This is a tragedy, that it's been translated like that. And I'm very, very, very nervous about making any point that depends upon the original Greek, but I would leave you to work this out for yourselves. You can look at any online Bible, you can look at Strong's, you can figure this for yourself from any Greek text. The whoever there, the whoso, is not really translating any Greek word that's in the text. The literal meaning is the one marrying her. The one, the person, the one man who does this is going to commit adultery. In other words, here's a situation. Uh, Your wife has uh, unfortunately had an affair with a guy and she slept with him or had some sort of pornea with him and uh, if he then marries her, well, he has committed adultery. And so, that's why, in verse 10, the disciples say, if that is the case with the man, then it's, it's not good for, for him to marry. Why do they use, then, this definite article, the man, which specific singular man do they have in view? And I suggest the man that they have in view is this one of verse 9. The one who marries her, who has been, been sent away, commits adultery. And it's talking about the, the one with whom she's had an affair. The man. This would explain why in Matthew 5, where the Lord Well, the record, anyway, of the Lord's teaching about divorce is very, very brief. It seems to say that if you you send away a wife, divorce, if you like, if you send her away, you cause her, you force her to commit adultery. And, you know, you wonder if that is a global kind of truth. If you send away your wife, you make her commit adultery. You wonder how that can be true, because she doesn't have to commit adultery. But if you understand it in this more specific context, that makes perfect sense. Okay, she's had an affair with a guy. And if you say, huh, you you had an affair with that guy? You committed some sort of pornea with him? Okay, I'm sending you away. Get out of my house. Who's she going to go to? She's going to go to the guy that she was messing around with. And they're going to get married. And so you are leading her into adultery, and you are leading... Uh, the fellow with whom she slept or messed around with, you're leading him into adultery, and probably that will possibly result in the breakup of his first marriage, etc. All because of your unforgiveness. Now this is perfectly in line with the Lord's teaching in Matthew 18, that if you will not forgive, you cause the little ones to stumble. It absolutely, This explanation absolutely rings true. It has the ring of truth to it, I think. Now, I know I, I sort of fight my own corner pretty well uh, when it comes to you know, my interpretations and stuff, but as I said at the start of this talk, you go and figure it out for yourselves. I'm sharing with you what I see uh, here in, 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 in this text. The man, the case of the man, which man, why that, why that article... Uh, and I don't think that they're, they're saying, ah, oh, yeah, marriage is a bad idea, because Genesis clearly says that man alone is not good. Is not good. It's not. It was not good that the man should dwell alone. And yet here they're saying, in in this case, in this case, what case? There's a specific case in view, and it is the specific case of the man whose wife has committed adultery. And for that man, for the man, in the case, which is being brought to the Lord's attention, uh, it would not be good to marry that woman, because it would be adultery. Now, as I say, if we do not forgive people, this is what happens. That you lead them into sin. And that's, as I say, why I think Matthew 5 says that if you divorce, if you send away your partner, you cause them to commit adultery. Well, you know, not necessarily. You know, not every uh, divorced person remarries. That's not a global truth. But what is the case is that, okay, you, your wife's messing around with somebody, you uh, won't forgive them, and therefore you say, I send you away, divorce as it's translated, but I send you out of the house uh, who's she going to go to? Well, she's obviously going to go to the bloke that she's been messing around with, and they're going to get married. Not difficult to figure that. And you, you who did not commit adultery, you who are so righteous, but you who cannot forgive, you are the one who will be responsible for that. Now, that, that, that's, I think, the, the whole uh, sum of the the teaching here. But then... He, he goes on to talk about eunuchs. Now, who's a eunuch? I don't mean which one of you lot's a eunuch. I mean, what is a eunuch? Get my grammar correct. What's a eunuch? A eunuch is someone who's cut off a body part, correct? It's a man who's cut off, had his penis cut off, let's get it right. Now, that again is exactly in the context of what the Lord's been saying in Matthew 18, where he talks again about cutting off body parts, cutting off eyes, Hands that, that cause others to stumble in casting them from you. So I think what the Lord is saying is, yes, uh, difficult as this is, difficult as it is, you really must do it or else you will cause others to stumble. by By your unforgiveness, by your refusal to take seriously your need to do all that you can so that others don't stumble. Now, it says in verse 11, All men can't receive the saying, save they to whom it is given. Quite clearly, he does cut some slack. He is saying that there's, there's different levels here. If you can't receive it, well, okay, I'll accept you. That is what I think he's saying. Now, of course, we might all say, Oh, well, I can't receive it. I'm just a weak little person. But, uh, you know, just bear that in mind, that the Lord te- uh, takes each of us differently. And there may be some things that he does hope for from you. And we're going to see later in chapter 19, when the rich man comes to him, the Lord says, no, you've got to sell all that you have and give to the poor and come follow me. Well, you know, literally every single person doesn't have to sell all that they have and give to the poor or, or else they won't be saved. No, the Lord was Dealing with that man on the level of what he thought the man was capable of. For example, Zacchaeus it specifically said that he sold half. He sold half of my goods and gave to the poor. Very similar language to what the Lord uses here about the rich young man. My point is that there are different expectations for different people. And I would go further and talk about different hopes. And as your relationship with your Lord... Uh, increases and deepens and and you come to the point where you are not just asking God for things but you are actually talking to Jesus uh, and asking him to share with you his hopes for you. What is his hope for you? What are the talents that you've been given to trade? And then you will see what he hopes for from you. The point is, if the rich young man had just bowed his head and said, Lord, yeah, I hear you. I hear you, but I can't do it. I just haven't got the spunk to do it. But I love you, and I want to follow you. I'm sure the Lord, you know, I think that's how they, the story begs us to, to kind of interpret it. The Lord would have said, yeah, sure, okay, you come along with me then. Um, now, it's the same, I, I think, it's the same theme with with forgiveness back in chapter 18 if you really can't stomach to forgive your brother well okay then go through the, uh, the, the synagogue or the ecclesia discipline process and chuck the guy out of your church uh, if that's how it has to be but then there's the parable at the end of chapter 18 you are the man with a colossal debt and that is how you are to perceive yourself and any other debt that anyone has to you be it your wife committing adultery that is just nothing compared to what you perceive that you owe to your Lord and have been forgiven for. Now, the strength to obey is a gift. All men can't receive this saying, save them to whom it is given. Repentance, for example, is also a gift. If you notice that, uh, to the Gentiles, Acts 11, 18, uh, the Lord has granted, not forgiveness, has granted repentance unto life. 2 Timothy 2.25 If perhaps the Lord will give them repentance. God is willing and able and the Lord Jesus is willing and able to give people a spiritual strength and spiritual ability to cope with, with temptation. He's willing to do that. And you know, the Lord is saying look, okay, that potential is there but all men won't receive it unfortunately. So I don't think that he's talking here in a global context about divorce, remarriage, like in a global context, divorce per se. He is talking about this specific incident, uh, really, that was in mind. What if a man has a wife that has committed adultery, but she's still living with him? Uh, should he send her away? Now, come on, Jesus. Uh, you said there must be unconditional forgiveness 490 times a day, or you know, unlimited per day. Does that include that? And they they thought they had the weight of Moses behind them to say no no you must you must send her away. Moses said so. And Jesus is saying no no no. This is uh, this is simply a, a concession to human weakness. So the whole uh, line of interpretation that tries to see Jesus as taking a side between Shemay and Hillel, I personally uh, don't think that that is particularly much in in view here. And of course. The law of Moses itself contained all kinds of different levels, but their legalistic minds didn't want to see that. I mean, let's take this issue of what to do with your wife if she commits adultery. You've got Numbers 5. You can put her through the trial of jealousy. And if she's guilty, then she's childless for the rest of her life. Okay? You can also kill her. If she commits adultery, you can stone her to death, even burn her with fire, according to the law. Or, you can divorce her. Or, there's another option, as you see in the book of Hosea, which is at a time when Israel was still under the law. You can simply forgive her, which is what God, of course, did multiple times to to Israel for their unfaithfulness. So there were a range of responses, even under the law. And of course, we, we've read here how Moses, for the harmless of their hearts, allowed them to send away their wives. Uh, who sent away their wife? Moses himself. It actually says that, that he sent her away. And it would appear to be not for adultery either. Uh, so, <clears throat> there you are. All their quoting of Moses uh, was this sort of legalistic, line-by-line, word-by-word reading of the Bible, uh, which is, which actually will lead you to the wrong place. There's got to be a wider sense of understanding of principle, uh, which is, of course, what the, the Lord does. But he says, whoever can receive it, let him receive it, verse 12. And uh, the word for receive literally means to have space for. Now, there simply are different levels of response that people make to God's truth. One person trades what they've got they end up with five five talents. Of, they get five cities in the kingdom of God. Another guy just has two and he gets two cities. One star differs from another in glory. Different seed brings forth, or different ground I should say, brings forth different responses, different percentage of response. And even at the end of this chapter... Uh, the Lord talks about those who have literally 29 forsaken houses and brothers, etc. They shall receive a hundredfold. Well, that's an allusion to the power of the sower. Not everybody produced a hundredfold. That's very hard to live with in church life. It's very hard to cope with. Because we all like to think that everyone should respond on my level. And people who respond more than me, we think they're up themselves, uh, trying to be better than, than we are, etc. Tall poppy syndrome, let's bring them down. They're not really as good as they make out, um, and then we get judgmental of those beneath us, as it were, as we see it, uh, on the spiritual level. Uh, All we've got to do is to simply accept that different people will respond to God's truth on different levels, and although salvation itself is a penny a day, we all get it by absolute grace, the nature of our eternity in God's kingdom will differ quite clearly uh, from person to person in response to how we have lived in this life. Well, then again, in 13, verse 13 of chapter 19, they bring the little children to him. Just as a child was brought to them in chapter 18, they didn't want to accept the child, and the Lord says, you must accept the child uh, into your midst, in the same way as you must forgive, or else you will be guilty of making these little ones to stumble, and then you won't be in God's kingdom at all. So he accepts them, puts his hands on them, and blesses them. And I think that uh, when the the Lord rebuked, uh, sorry, the disciples rebuked them, they keep on doing this. They rebuke the Syrophoenician woman. They sent away the crowds, or tried to send away the crowds, before the Lord had fed them. Uh, Quite often they're presented as being a barrier between Jesus and the little ones in various ways. And the Lord says, Forbid them not. Using the same word in Mark nine thirty eight for how they forbade the disciples of John the Baptist. And the Lord is saying, Look, suffer those little ones to to, to come to me. So then whoever Mark ten adds, whoever will not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall no way enter into it. So the language of entering the kingdom, it's used about our final entry into God's kingdom, but it's also used about our entering now in this life. So it's one of those sort of now but not yet things. This is why the Lord criticized the fallacies. He says, you don't want to enter in, and those who are trying to enter in, you hinder. So... We are on our way to God's kingdom. And insofar as we have responded to the gospel, we've started the journey. Like he says in another parable, you're on your way to judgment. So don't fall out with your brother on the way and reconcile with your brother, because soon the journey will end and you will be there. So he lays his hands on them and blesses them. Why does he do that? Well, they had the idea that the physical laying on of hands was needed to mediate blessing. Well, of course the Lord's blessing can be mediated without the physical laying on of his hands. But again, he goes along with a lower level. And then this rich young man comes to him, comes running to him, verse 16, according to what Mark says, and says, what good thing must I do? I think it's the mentality really of the suicide bomber. Give me one thing I've got to do to assure me of salvation and I'll do it. And uh, it's not like that because the Lord answers by saying, Well, in your case, sell all that you've you've got and come and follow me. So it's a life of following me. It's not one good thing. Now I think Paul alludes here in Romans seven nineteen, where he laments that the good thing that I would do I find myself unable to do. Exactly the same words of the young man and I said before that Paul's writings are alluding to the Gospels literally every couple of verses. In my book, Paul and Peter, you you can see that I've written them all out. There's a huge number of them. His writings are just studded with all the time with allusions back to the Gospels, literally every couple of verses. And probably more than that. It's just what I happen to have perceived. And so there in Romans seven nineteen, the good thing that I would do, I cannot. This is exactly what the young man said. What good thing shall I do? And Paul says, well, I, I would love to, but I can't. But he still followed Jesus. The point is that the little children came to Jesus, but this rich young man walks away from Jesus because he can't bring himself to be like Paul and say, look, wretched man that I am. The good thing that I'd love to do, I just feel I can't. So I throw myself on his grace, and in that I rejoice and shall be saved. So the man doesn't have to, doesn't have to turn away, but he, he does. And then the Lord goes on to talk about the camel going for the eye of the needle, and he says, How hardly shall a rich man enter the kingdom? He doesn't mean a rich man can't enter, he's saying that it's very difficult, it's very hard. Why is it hard when he wants to save men and women so eagerly? What's hard for anyone about getting into the kingdom? Well the difficulty, the hardness, if you like, how hardly shall they that have riches enter the kingdom, the difficulty, the hardness, was that the man could not accept that he was living on a lower level. He couldn't accept that. And he proudly thought that he was the higher level caliber, the higher level material, and he couldn't accept that. Uh, he actually had to accept that I can't get up to that level. I've got to just accept that, right, that's the standard for me, but I can't reach it. So I throw myself like Paul did, the good thing that I would like to do I can't do. Well, he, threw, he didn't want to throw himself on God's grace. And that is what is hard. He says, Jesus says, if you want to enter into life, then keep the commandments. The man had the idea that eternal life was some future point. And the Lord is saying, no, you can enter into that life now. And John's Gospel has a lot of this kind of thing. That now we have eternal life. Not that we shall not die. We shall die. Uh, and by God's grace be resurrected and receive eternal life. But we can live the eternal life now in the sense that today we can live the kind of life that we shall eternally live in God's kingdom. And he says, why do you call me good, 17? Uh, Keep the commandments. And I think the emphasis should not be on the word good, but on the word why. Why? Why you, you run to me this good master business, you get on, buddy, and keep the commandments. And follow me in daily life, all the rest of your life. I think that this man had the idea that Jesus was some kind of superhuman being, God, if you like, uh, and he comes running to him and says, oh, good master, what what have I got to do to get into eternity? And the Lord answers him by saying, why? Why all this good master business, young man? Why? Why are you maxing out on me being the good one? I'm not God, you know. God's the only one. The only one God is the only good truly good one. I'm human, and I've got human nature like you have. And he knew what was in man, and as Paul says, I know that in me, and that's alluding to Jesus, he knew what was in man. In me, Paul says, there is there dwells no good thing. That's Romans seven, eighteen. Uh, it's all there in Romans 7, alluding back to this incident, because in Romans 7, 19, he says, the good thing that I would like to do, like the young man, I can't do. Uh, he says, in me, there is no good thing. Connecting with how Jesus says that I'm not good. Doesn't He's not talking about sinlessness, because he was sinless. But he's saying only God is good, in that sense. You get on and keep the commandments. What's the connection here? I think he's saying look, the fact that I am not God, the fact that only he is ultimately good, the fact that I'm human, and in me, as in, as a human, there dwells no good thing, uh, by by his nature, as it were, he's saying, that means that you should keep the commandments. So, the humanity of Jesus, the fact he was not God, is actually a call for us to keep commandments and to live as he lived. And that is far harder, I suggest, than the idea that Jesus is God and uh, i just got to do some symbolic little act and he'll give me eternity. I think that in every false doctrine, and the Trinity is definitely a false doctrine, there is a psychological reason why people believe it. And I think the idea that Jesus is God makes him that much more distant from us and takes away the challenge. Of living as he did. The Lord uh, says, uh, keep the commandments, tereo. Um, And the man answers in verse 20 that he has kept the commandments from his youth. But he uses a totally different word. Like, I've kept on to them, I've preserved them. Now this is the, the problem with any kind of statement of faith, be it the 613 commandments of Moses or be it any statement of faith in any, any human group. Uh, we can end up like the one talent man, who at the end of it all said, here is your talent, I have kept it in the earth. I didn't steal it, I didn't go and sell it and squander the money, I kept it, I preserved it, I give it back to you. And the Lord says, you wicked man, you're not going to be in my kingdom. In other words, we've got to do something with those commandments. Keep them in the way Jesus says, rather than keep in the sense of just preserve them in the way that this young man thought. And that's, to be honest, is how I was brought up. Here's a statement of faith, son, when I was baptized, keep that to the end of your life. As if by maintaining that intellectual purity and continuity of understanding with that document, that's all that's required. Well, that's the one talent man, I'm afraid, and that's this rich young man. We told in Mark that the Lord Jesus looked at this man and loved him. The young man said to him, I have kept all these from my youth up. Oh, mean, goodness, how up yourself. You know, I, I would have been really irritated if this young man said, Yes, I've kept all those from a young man. But you're only a young man. And yet, When we would have looked at this man, and as we look at him through the record and sort of dislike him for saying that, Mark says, the Lord looked at him and loved him. That's an amazing grace. He really wanted that man. And he says, if you will be perfect, verse 21, sell what you have and give to the poor. So again, he's raising the idea that's gone right through Matthew 18 and 19. If you want to be perfect, this is the higher level. Sell all that you've got. And give to the poor. And as I said earlier, Zacchaeus sold half of his goods. He didn't sell all that he had. And gave to the poor. Very same words are used. So these differing standards which there are, uh, which are acceptable to the law, uh, it's very difficult for the legalistic mind to to accept that. And for these scribes and fallacies, etc., it was so difficult, just as it is so difficult for so many people today, to get their head round the idea that actually uh, God is prepared to accept people on different levels. You now, he talks about how hard it is for the rich man to get into the kingdom, and he says it's, like, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Well, after all the different explanations, I come back to the old classic one, which my dear dad taught me as a little boy, and uh, I, having gone through a whole load of... Uh, different expositions and ideas, I come back to it. The needle gate was the little pedestrian gate in the city wall, and the big, huge gate was normally open to let the camels go through with all their goods, but the camel could just about squeeze himself through the pedestrian gate if he got down onto his, uh, onto his knees uh, and got rid of all the wealth and the goods that were on top of him, and he could just squeeze through And yet, as I said, the the difficulty there is not because God doesn't want to save, but because God is just indifferent and says, look, it's your issue, it's your deal if you want to be saved or not. No, Jesus looked at this arrogant young guy and loved him. He wanted him. The point is, to humble ourselves, to get into the kingdom, is so difficult. And of course, the parallel is with the little child, the little children. And Jesus says, unless you're going to humble yourself as a little child, you won't get into the kingdom. To come down on your, on your knees uh, and just accept that grace. This was the example of the child. That they accepted the blessing of Jesus. The grace of Jesus that, that was put on them. The disciples were exceedingly amazed. Verse 25 is a really strong term. They were staggered that a rich person can hardly be saved. Yeah, clearly they had totally not got the point of so much of the Lord's teaching, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, about wealth. Because they still had the idea that if someone's wealthy, it's because God blessed them. And you're saying that the, the rich, it's really hard for them to get into God's kingdom? Wow. They were shocked. They were staggered. And they, they say that in 25, who then can be saved? And the Greek word translated can crops up uh, again... Uh, Later on, when Jesus says, verse 26, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. All things can be. So when they say, who then can be saved, who then possibly can be saved, Jesus says, with God it can be. And what he's saying there is that, yeah, it's really hard for a rich person to get into the kingdom. But it can be, with God. In other words, even if The rich guy does not sell all his wealth and give to the poor, as Jesus said. He can still get there, by God's grace. And this fits in seamlessly. And as I say, it's all in this chiasmus, uh, which uh, uh, divides up the material of 18 and 19 uh, of Matthew. Uh, It all fits in seamlessly. But the whole idea, starting in chapter 18, of the uh, accepting the little child, who maybe doesn't understand very much, doesn't believe very much, uh, of forgiving unconditionally, 70 times 7, rather than the lower level of taking somebody through the uh, ecclesial discipline uh, process, etc. Et and then chapter 19, this whole business, what should I do if my wife commits adultery? Yeah, you can divorce her, you can send her away, but you'll make her commit adultery really by doing that, uh, or you can just forgive her. And so then, with this rich young man, again the same theme, uh, the higher level, now, sell what you've got and give it to the poor, but the rich man who didn't want to do that, who just didn't have the spunk to do that, the Lord says, look, with God it can be. He can be saved by God's grace. But what's difficult is that he doesn't want to accept that grace because he thinks that he should be uh, sort of the highest caliber in, in, the, uh, in the ecclesia and, and in God's kingdom. So then, that is my best shot at this whole difficult uh, issue of divorce and remarriage, acceptive clauses, uh, etc. The highest standard in all this um, really is brought out in 1 Corinthians 7, which has got a lot of allusions uh, to Matthew 19, where Paul says, look, the highest standard is don't get married. But and if you marry, you haven't sinned. And but and if is... uh, a phrase that he uses a number of times in 1 Corinthians 7. He talks about separation. And again he says, no, don't do it but and if. You do it, well, okay. So there are these ranges of response. Now that is the case, but I would not like to conclude by saying, you can breathe a sigh of relief, guys. Uh, we're just about scrape in. sort of, regardless of our weakness. Let me put it positively. If I say to you, I'm thirsty. I'm up here at a podium, and I'm thirsty. Actually, I do not have a glass of water. I'm thirsty. What are you going to do? Can you get me a glass of water? Sure. But if I said, guys, can you get me a glass of water? But uh, actually, if you look in the fridge in the kitchen on the right there, there's actually uh, some juice. That would be better. Best of all uh, would be some coffee. Uh, And best of all would be coffee with milk. And the milk is in the uh, in the large fridge that is just uh, outside, and you'll have to unlock it, uh, etc., to get it out. What are you going to do? If you bring me water, thank you. If you bring me juice, well, thanks. Bring me coffee, well, well, thanks a lot. And if you bring me the coffee with the milk, which is difficult to get to, well, thank you so much. If you love me, <laughs> you're going to bring me the coffee, right? Now, the fact that God has given us this range of response, it's not, our response to that surely is not to be minimalists. I know that word is in English, but it's in Russian very, uh, quite commonly. Uh, minimalist. That to, to be minimalists, I think you can have it in English, why not. Uh, the, the, the range of different responses does not make you a minimalist, surely. Ah, okay, what's the minimum I gotta do, buddy? No. What is your hope for me, Lord? Give me the strength to, to do it as far and as high as I can. And the good thing that I would do, sometimes, Lord, as Paul says, Romans seven nineteen, I cannot. But all the same, I throw myself on your grace, and I rejoice in that.